Hello everyone. Before we get into today's episode, the Two Scientists team just wanted to say, although we didn't win a Webby, we were still super stoked to have been even nominated to go up against the likes of Vox and NASA. We'd like to offer a huge thank you to everyone who voted for us. So now, from your favourite Webby-nominated podcast, join us for our conversation with Jason Wilson, who we're calling The Patient Doctor. All right, dear listeners, welcome back to another episode of Two Scientists, where inspiring scientists share their work with you wherever you like to listen. Today's guest is quite the man about town in Tampa, at least in scientific circles, and I'll explain what I mean. But first, Jason Wilson, how are you? I'm doing great. It's great to be in New World, and it's great to be here. Oh, thank you. And name drop the the venue saves me having to do it. So my flipping comes from the fact that we had you in our list from kind of local news sources, and we thought he'd be an interesting person to speak to. And then we recorded with Edlyn Verona last year, and she said, oh, yeah, he's my COVID guru, and now you work with her at the, the Center for Justice Research and Policy. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we recorded another podcast with Dr. Karina Rodriguez, and she also oh, yeah. mentioned that you worked on trials. Is there anyone in Tampa who doesn't know who you are? <laughs> well, hopefully there's some people, but, uh, you know, we, I do some pretty inter- interdisciplinary stuff. So you end up meeting lots of smart people like Karina and Adeline. Yeah, so speaking of interdisciplinary, can you give us like a a brief review of your academics and how you got to the position that you're currently in? Yeah, sure. So, you know, basically I describe myself, which is funny to say, like, I describe myself, like, why would you need to do that? But (laughs) (laughs) when you look at like, it's either that I have a 10 minute conversation about like titles or something. So, you know, I, I call myself a physician anthropologist, essentially. And so what does that mean? That means I, I am a medical doctor and I see patients and I do other kind of administrative things around regular medical practice. But I'm also a social scientist and I try to not only do what I do in medical practice with the social science lens, but also formulate questions to move both fields, anthropology and medicine forward with that same perspective. Yeah. So that's that's really interesting. I mean, there can't be too many physicians out there with the kind of background that you have. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you said that when I um, really kind of realized that's what I was, you know, I sort of took a look around to see, you know, who else was out there, right? It's just something you'd actually do, I mm-hmm. think, an identity formation or identity seeking and everyone listening to the podcast is probably familiar with the most famous of the physician anthropologists is probably Paul Farmer okay. who actually just died totally unexpectedly uh, last week in uh, Rwanda which is where he's currently working and you know Paul Paul Farmer is an interesting um, physician anthropologist because he's very different than I am in many ways and then there's some similarities and if it's okay, I'll, just, I'll take like one minute and talk through that because I think it, it kind of sets a little bit of um, an understanding of what I do and why why it's different and why it's the same as other anthropologists. So Paul Farmer was really known for this approach called structural violence mm-hmm. in a sort of part of the discipline of medical anthropology called critical medical anthropology. And so what Farmer did was he was an infectious disease doctor and he approached infectious disease by both a physician-patient encounter, seeing patients, treating patients, really coming of age in the HIV epidemic, treating them, and then TB also, tuberculosis also, an individual basis, but then thinking about big systems of power mm-hmm. and big systems of power and equity, and about how those systems of power and power and equities really 
were violence put onto a person every time they interact in that system, mm-hmm. every time they engage that system. And it was a great approach. It was a brilliant approach, right? Because he changed entire systems of care. He changed how we deliver tuberculosis medicines. He changed how the WHO thinks about TB. He changed how Russian prisons think about delivering medications, right? So a very important approach. Why I say that what I do is sometimes similar and sometimes different is because I may not approach things so much from the top down, mm-hmm. but as perhaps maybe more from the inside, this is like you make like inside a uh, bottom up perspective, meaning uh-huh. I also see lots of patients in the emergency department, have that one-on-one interaction for them, and then try to think about how I'm seeing those patients, where their care might be lacking, and how we can then build new systems, new systems perhaps of change and of medical treatment from that. Yeah. So let's backtrack a little bit yeah. because obviously I, I was looking through your CV, which makes for really intense reading, actually. <laughs> but um, you, so you did an undergraduate in anthropology. You went off and did a master's, and then you came back to medicine. So why that particular yeah. kind of route? So it's funny, you know. Now, now it's going to sound like a very linear narrative, and uh-huh. of course, at the time, you're just a 24 year old kid trying to figure out what the heck you want to do with your <laughs> life, right? But in like the hindsight retrospectoscope, it all makes sense to me now. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a lot of ways, I almost look at it like I went out in the field for a long time and came back in from the cold, and like spy terminology, right? Like you know, <laughs> it was um, essentially medical training becoming a, you know, attending fully, you know, self-confident physician or whatever was just part of this like overall arc that I had to go through to get to where I wanted to be. Now, I didn't know that really at the time when I was, you know, 24 and decided to go to medical school. When I'm 24 and decided to go to medical school, I'm at the University of Michigan. I'm there, you know, working on my PhD and I'm getting a little bit frustrated by things that 24-year-olds tend to get frustrated by, like, I want to do more. I want to be an advocate. I want to affect change. I want to drive change. And I'm in a lab or I'm in an office and I'm writing a grant. And how could I do this? And, you know, what I started seeing were people coming into, I was in a human adaptation lab space, to be mm-hmm. uh, specific. And I started sort of seeing people kind of coming through that space, physicians coming through that space who were like going off to the field to not only think about something intellectually, but also to treat people. And that combo at that age was like super enticing, right? And so that led me to go to medical school and, uh, you know, become a physician. And it was interesting because I, even then I knew I would return somehow. And I was like, it was for, for a decade almost, it was like poking around about how do I return to this like academic route that I have, Mm -hmm. that I know is part of how I see the world. And as I know is how I ask questions, how do I, come back to it and you know and we could talk about at some point in the story but you know eventually it all kind of comes together and i realize there's this clear path now unfolded as to how to come on back you know to the to the discipline and i mean i could just yeah i could go through that now <laughs> that makes, sure, i sort of like it. overdrive the questions no, but no, um no, okay um so you know i, I go off to the university of michigan i'm a phd student i finish my master's i decide to go to medical school i go to medical school I'm sort of poking at anthropology the whole time, right? Like, what, where is the anthropology here? You know, I had, I had gone to Mexico during medical school and thought about doing some work with um, uh, training OB physicians around life-saving management that wasn't there yet and some of the barriers in care. Met some anthropologists. was like, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the thing. But uh, it, it was like, 
it was the Goldilocks thing where it just wasn't quite the right. It wasn't my question, uh-huh. right? And it, it just ended up taking time in the field of medicine, being a medical doctor to see where the actual question sat. And then the first thing I got really frustrated with was in medicine, we sort of train people the same way over time. Yeah. Okay. And yet we all sit around and we recognize that the outcomes aren't where we want them to be and that our physicians don't have the compassion patient experience center lenses that we want them to have. But if we're training people the same way, why would they have anything differently? Yeah. At the same time, this is happening. You know, I'm starting to get to a place where I have lots of students asking to shadow me because they need hours. Students asking to do quote unquote research, right? Uh This is like the common (laughs) just word that they're told to go do. Yeah. And they don't know anything about what that word means they're just they would like to come do the research right they're told to do the research they like to do the research right it's like a bike ride (laughs) and so you know i've got i've got these like you know it's just like pulling my mind different directions this is like we're in like 2012 2013 you know now in the Mm -hmm. linear narrative um you know and i i'm like what do i do with all of this and you know as life does often i'd gone back to talk to the anthropology students at usf the undergrads i ended up running into Roberta Bear, who is an anthropology, a medical anthropologist. Mm. And Robbie and I have known each other. I'll date her and I'll date myself since I took a class of hers in 1997 as an undergraduate. And it stayed, you know, sort of in touch or whatever. And, and you know, we're like, let's just go have coffee and figure out if there's something to do here. She, she had always wanted to change medical education. And I was realizing that medical education was going to change without some kind of different way to train. Yeah. you know, future physicians. And the other thing I was also, it, this was this was biting at me and I didn't know what it was yet, but I what I knew was that the way we were developing pathways of care. So when I say pathways, you know, what I'm saying is not just a prescribed treatment, but instead how we unfold medical care around a disease state. And so our most mature pathways are things like heart attack or coronary artery disease. Uh, cancer has some very mature pathways, obviously, as well. And this is not just one treatment. It's an entire expectation of what care is going to look like for the patient and the way you deliver that care. So it's, okay, I've got a patient with a certain cancer. They're going to need this chemotherapy, this radiation. They're going to need to stay at this place. They're going to need to do it for this long. It's going to take this many months or this many weeks, this many years. They're going to have to do these other things while they're doing it. Their family's not going to be around them for these times. So you have to wear a mask during these times. It's an entire set of, of contextual elements. That's what I mean by pathway. Yeah. So people sometimes say, you mean like an algorithm? No, I don't. An al- algorithm is like, yes, no, they have this, they don't. This is, you've got the disease. What do we do? And yeah. what I have learned is that physicians, whether they can um, articulate it or not, are very dependent on pathways. Mm -hmm. They will basically move to the place the pathway is constructed, and they'll move away from the place the pathway is not constructed. And so if I have a disease state where there's a clear pathway or clear opportunity for pathway, uh, there'll be attraction to that. There'll be um, kind of an ease of putting patients through that. The ICD-10 codes will actually change, right? You'll actually see diagnoses of that change uh, yeah. because there's a way to deal with it. What we're trying to do is train to treat people, right? So you'll see treatment around it versus things that don't have very well worked out pathways. Like a lot of things we see in the emergency departments, right? A lot of things we see in the emergency department are not classic new onset cancers or new onset strokes or uh, we, we see a lot of sepsis, but new onset heart attacks. There are other more complicated things that have a lot to do with social determinants of healthcare driving an outcome that we're seeing that day. What do I do with that? That's messy. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. I want a pathway. And so where we came back to was we've got to build out some of these pathways in order to get those patients care and decrease some of those clear disparities we were seeing around places that have mature pathways and places that didn't. And if you look at the places of mature pathways, what you kind of realize is there's a lot of structural issues as to why they're mature. And the structural issues in this country are often payer related. They're incentivized lined. They're related to things like compliance organizations, things like mm. the Joint Commission or ACA. Can you quickly define what ACA is? Oh, yeah, so, sorry. Okay. Yeah, the Agency for Healthcare Administration. That's mm -hmm. kind of uh, the police of the right. hospital, right? Okay. They have the ability to fine you, shut you down, make you change things, right? So people tend to, to do what ACA says, right? People tend to do what Joint Commission says, another type of organization like that. We call them compliance organizations, mm -hmm. essentially. And the idea is they have quality improvement and patient safety in mind, and they're trying to drive variability across care down by doing the best practice. So their, their mission is a good one, but it does definitely drive certain pathway developments. So you know, part of my overall underlying question became, how can I get at these pathways at some point? And we thought maybe the first place to do that was through medical education. Mm -hmm. And this was attractive to my anthropology colleague in the sense that she had really always wanted to affect change early on, as we call it, shift the clinical gaze. Yep. And I had wanted to deal with all these people who were asking me to do research, like ride a bike or something, you know, or go bowling, <laughs> like can I do research, right? And to also um, deal with all these people who want to do quote unquote shadow me, which is like a thing you're supposed to do in medicine where they kind of just follow you around and don't really know what to do, you know? Oh, that's the bathroom. Sorry about that, Dr. Wilson. Let me <laughs> wait till you're out of that one. Um, it does happen. And so, you know, I was like, maybe this medical education thing is the entryway into pathway change. Maybe it's the way to, over the long game, change the clinical gaze, shift it mm -hmm. over to a patient experience approach, prime people to be ready for pathway engagement as physicians, and bring that kind of model in. And so we started teaching the class, the patient-physician interaction class, and uh, well, we designed in 2014 and started teaching in 2015, and that class uh, went really well. You know, when we designed that class, we were hoping to get 10 or 12 people to take the class not really knowing what we were going to get. I, you know, I never really had undergraduates doing actual stuff in the ER. You yeah. know, I had a credential and everything. I was like, and, you know, we didn't think there'd be much interest. So it was like, maybe we'll get 10 or 12. That's about the right number. And we ended up with almost 160 applications. <laughs> or, you know, people were just emailing us to take the class. We didn't realize there were applications at the time. It became applications, essentially. Yeah. And so that's how the class ran for the next five years. And it was a very successful class. Every year we would do a research project that gave back to the hospital. Mm -hmm. So we would find ways to improve patient experience, design leaflets for patients in the ER waiting room. That really became the clinical anthropology book of all these little projects, all these projects the students did. And then, you know, I think what that led to though was great, medical education is important, but medical education doesn't really change a uh, neoliberal capital system of healthcare, <laughs> right? No shit. <laughs> yeah, right. Guess what? <laughs> so then it was like, wait a minute. Okay, education. This is good. We're priming people. I like that. We're changing the gaze. We're still following those students, by the way. We're following longitudinally now for a year. Some of them into their attending life and asking, does this decrease your rate of burnout? Do you still have a patient-centered lens? And are you more likely to engage in pathway creation or some kind of open approach to medical care? But ultimately, it became a realization, yes, education is one of the legs of the table, but we also have to get at incentivized reimbursement, a compliance, and those pieces. And so 
that that I would say is really what changed my thinking as the class went on is that we had to start bringing in I want to say more serious students these are obviously all good students but professional anthropology students essentially yeah. people who want to be anthropologists and drive change that way and what I kind of think about is like my work now started with that model which is really engaging clinical anthropologists or engaging medical anthropologists into a clinical space directly not to be agents of critique but to be actual agents of change with a very partnered approach to that change so we brought in C.T. Villalona as our first student and um, he came in and uh, as a graduate student, as a master's student, he's now in medical school. He actually mm -hmm. went to medical school and is just matched. So congrats to C.T. He'll be a pediatrician. <laughs> but uh, C.T. came in and looked at low English proficiency. Yeah. And that's, you know, this, this concept that a lot of people, especially in Tampa, you know, in most big cities, emergency department, English is not their first language, mm -hmm. but we're going to have a very important conversation now in a language, potentially not your first language. That's, uh, you know, an important vulnerability to get at. And so if I go back to 2016, the way we had those conversations was often on a blue old fashioned phone with two <laughs> handsets yeah. that you would try to get to work. A lot of patients we see in an emergency department are not in a room by themselves. So is there even a phone jack to have this conversation? Mm -hmm. Well, what Sichi did was he tested this idea that video conferencing uh -huh. actually would work. And, you know, we talked about this beforehand that like, yeah, what we're doing right now is better than Zoom, but Zoom is still better than a telephone, yeah. right? At least I can see you and your reactions. And if I'm giving you important information or sensitive information, it's nice to see some eyeballs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so the question was really that Sichi asked was, is video better and is it better than a non-trained medical interpreter, you know, the uh, whoever, the nurse, the cleaning person, anybody we could get, a family member. And what we found out was clearly patient experience, patient satisfaction was higher when people had a video professional interpreter. Now, I, I point that out because patient satisfaction is really important because it gets to that other table leg I talked about, which is incentivized alignments. Yeah. Patient experience and patient satisfaction are part of really how hospitals get paid now. Mm -hmm. And actually how providers get paid too. So what we hit on was a way that we could improve patient satisfaction by doing a thing, a video interpretation. And that led to hardwiring that approach, meaning now it's on my phone. I can put it on my phone, put a video interpreter on my phone, walk up to a patient in a hallway bed, put a video of whatever language they speak. Really, it's basically every language you could imagine is on yeah. Syracom. And I could put that language on the phone and have at least somewhat of a conversation where they can look at a human being, which I think does add something to that, to that encounter. So, you know, from the low English proficiency work, what we realized was we might be able to build out pathways, meaning actual integrated change into operation clinically that align with some of these other pieces of healthcare so we can hardwire change over time. And CG's work was really the first example of that. Yeah, it's very, very cool work. But the first thing that comes to my mind is I come from a country with a centralized national health service, right? So if you do research into a particular thing, there seems to be a reasonable way that you could implement this across a country. How the hell do you do that in the US? <laughs> Yeah, you know, and I, I figured out a while ago, I could go in two different ways. I could, you know, spend a lot of time really trying to advocate for the obvious changes that we need and overall how the healthcare is spent down. But I felt that my role as a practicing physician put me in a different space because I work within a system where I really understand the alignments and all the incident pieces. I, I, I get those, I practice in them. And I get those because I act as an administrator in them. Yep. And 
you know, my thought early was, okay, I, I could have a noble cause of probably banging my head against the wall and hoping for gigantic system change. Or I could leverage a lot of these things I really understand pretty well that drive physician behavior and hospital behavior and try to enact change at that level by really advocating for patients and driving from the bottom up. And that's really what I've chosen to do over these you know, last six or seven years. Now, that doesn't mean that sometimes it doesn't mean having to reapproach things from the top down, right? Certainly it does. But for the most part, most of our pathways that we assemble, they tend to happen from the culture that's generated between a patient and a physician having an interaction that over time, every single time encounter generates ideas that we latch onto to create new pathways for change. Mm -hmm. That's very cool. But presumably this is the kind of stuff that also gets published and other people will read at some point. Yeah, you know, so I think that's um, obviously the goal. And um, it, with this kind of stuff, is we want to scale this up. We want to hardwire these types of changes. And I, I, I think our most mature work right now is probably our work around opioid use disorder. Mm -hmm. You know, our work on opioid use disorder came to us very organically. I had started an HIV hepatitis C screening program in mm -hmm. 2016. Uh, Hillsborough County, this county is still a hot spot for HIV. Uh -huh. And I've been interested in getting HIV screening in our emergency department started since uh, the CDC changed the recommendations when I was a medical student in 2006, which mm -hmm. said that everyone should do non-targeted screening, meaning screening people who come into the ER. And it took me until about 2015 or 16 to actually enact that change. It took oh, a long wow. time. And the funding I got to enact that change actually came with hepatitis C screening. Right. And I'll tell you, at the time, I didn't care at all about hepatitis C screening. I was not interested. Mm. The ironic part, within about a year and a half of my program, my viewpoint had totally shifted. HIV screening and HIV treatment has a very mature pathway. Mm -hmm. So I go back to that because we have Ryan White funding, federal funding. There's an easy button that physicians can hit. Got it, HIV positive. Okay, they get linked to DOH or to one of our partner organizations. They're gonna get antiretroviral therapy. They'll start within a week. It works out great. Everybody gets you know good care. Hepatitis C though, the reason why that got funded was because at the time new drugs were coming around with hepatitis C. Those drugs were made for Medicare patients, patients right. over the age of 60. Uh -huh. That's who people thought of as hepatitis C patients. But guess what? The world's a crazy place and that ain't what happened. What actually happened was as soon as those drugs came out, an opioid epidemic started. Mm -hmm. And an opioid epidemic drove an entirely new hepatitis C epidemic. Oh, wow. And that ep hepatitis C epidemic is all in what we call non-age cohort or people right. who are young, young people in their 20s or early 30s. Well, now I started recognizing that in front of me, 2016, every hepatitis C positive person's um, a baby boomer, right? Mm -hmm. That's the word, so a baby boomer. By 2017, wait a minute, these are all 20 year olds now with new hepatitis C. Why do they have hepatitis C? Oh, because they use opioids. People who inject opioids. And basically by definition at this point, if you have hepatitis C, new transmission yeah. in this country, it's from you know opioid injection drug use. And so now things got really interesting because I was like, well, we've got a pathway for HIV. That's established. It's cool. I'm glad we have it. We're doing great things for patients. Half the people who have HIV don't know they have HIV, so yeah. we're helping with that. That's important. So great, great stuff. But these hepatitis C patients, we were really struggling to link them to care. There was no pathway for them and they didn't care because they were using opioids. And so that we had other things going on in their lives where they were not caring about their hepatitis C, right? Yeah. So a very complex from social determinants here. So we, we had a linkage rate 
for HIV of over 90%. Mm-hmm. We had a linkage rate of hepatitis C of less than 30%. Oh, wow. It was horrible. And then uh, people who actually got linked for hepatitis C, the ones where people would actually put them on medication for hepatitis C treatment was less than 3%. Oh, really? Abysmal. So what were we doing with these patients, right? We were doing, we were neglecting them. We were, we were creating disparity in front of us. We were making the disparity. So we realized we had to change that. Mm-hmm. So I brought in a graduate student, Heather Henderson, who just defended her PhD uh, uh-huh. one week ago. Congrats to Heather. <laughs> um, and Heather came in and she first spent her master's degree in the ER thinking about why do patients use opioids and what is going on here and why don't we have better systems of care around opioid use disorder? And it was interesting because she came in and she thought of it as sort of a stigma model, classic, what we call uh, critical medical anthropology model. And, you know, what she learned in ethnographic fieldwork in her master's degree was actually, this is more complicated. There's a sense of learned helplessness amongst the patients. Okay. But there's also a sense of learned helplessness amongst these providers. Uh It's like they just shut down when you talk about opioid. You talk about heart attacks, they'll get right up and do everything they can. And they'll, they'll, they'll come up with a really good treatment strategy. But you talk about opioids, like they're like third graders again, like they can't like (laughs) process it. So there's, there's this like learned helplessness. They don't really get addiction that can can be treated and yeah. they don't really understand this is a process just like any other process and so that led to her PhD work which is where we co-developed this pathway around treating people with opioid use disorder in the emergency department with a, a it's a medication called buprenorphine which stabilizes in an evidence-based way people with opioid use disorder and that led to really the first in the state ED-based opioid use disorder stabilization program using buprenorphine. Mm-hmm. And what was amazing about that is we saw providers' perspectives on opioid use disorder change almost overnight. Once I gave them tools, here's how we prescribe buprenorphine. Here's a peer, a peer is a person in recovery themselves. We're going to employ them in the ER. They're going to engage patients. They're going to do a lot of the legwork for you. A lot of these conversations yeah. they're going to have. They're going to come to you in a patient's appropriate for this medication. You're going to put them on medication. They're going to follow up at this site. Now we're starting to build a pathway. Uh-huh. And now all of a sudden people find joy and value in treating opioid disorder where they didn't see that joy or value before because they saw conflict in patient yeah. interaction before. That's all they saw was room six is conflict. Room seven, broken bone. I got that one. I'm going to yeah, room seven, yeah, yeah. right? Now all of a sudden room six is like, oh, I might be able to save that patient's life by giving the opioid use disorder treatment, buprenorphine. Yeah. But you know what else is really interesting? I might be able to get them to get linked to care for their hepatitis C. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll come back to that in a second because it kind of moves us off topic for a second. But hepatitis C and co-treatment with opioid disorder is a whole interesting topic of its own. So from there, Heather's work really built out this pathway around opioid use disorder, which has now grown to really a coordinated system of care with the the second syringe exchange program in the, in the state of Florida is here in Hillsborough County, operated by us, and then also the um, obviously the medical assistant therapy program, which is right. still going on. Yeah, so I mean, you kind of inadvertently answered one of the questions that occurred to me while you were talking because to me, as a cynic, I wondered if you know part of the, the reticence of people was just because uh, they're taking opioids, they're junkies, like I, I don't even want to have to deal with this. like. Do you think there's potentially that bias as well? And by you giving them an option to say, well, actually you can treat someone, it changed their viewpoint. Yeah, so here's where I'm at with that now. As physicians, we are so treatment oriented Mm -hmm. that if we start from a treatment lens and work backwards, our interest in the patient population goes up. And so 
if you really dig down for a second on any disease state disparity in this country, it's often because of social determinants of health or racism. Those are kind of your two major drivers of disparities in this country. And so let's talk about coronary disease for a second, because everybody can relate to that one. It's a, obviously a major epidemic in this country. But yeah, there, there is a subset of patients who just have, they got a bad gene lottery, right? Yeah. They, they got ApoE4 gene, and their cholesterol is going to be high, and they're going to have cholesterol-related plaque. Fine. Okay. The vast majority of coronary disease in this country is not from right genetic lottery it's from things that we put into for for a lot of reasons structural and otherwise right things that happen to us over our life trajectory yeah um so if you really dig down to it it's really not that different than the opioid patient but the patient who has the heart attack is really not that different than the patient's injecting drugs there's a lot of things that happen structurally culturally and personally a lot of trauma a lot of structural stuff that led to those decisions mm -hmm. Let me put it this way. I realize we can get to that understanding if we start with a treatment. Yeah. But if I tell you to deal with that patient, you got nothing, right? I send you the gunfight, you got no gun. And I don't want to send anybody gunfights or have any guns. <laughs> that's another, I just use that analogy. Um, then what are you going to do? You're going to be upset, yeah. right? And I always call it net negative. This is my patient experience terminology I use. Um, if I send you to room six and there's a patient that you know that you have no training for, and that you have no tools for, but you see in high volume, your interaction with that patient is already at net negative. Your, your patient satisfaction score is already below zero, right? You're already yeah. pissed going into that room. Now the sickle cell disease patient who you don't understand how to use opioid therapy for, or the patient with a non-fatal gunshot wound, or the patient with opioid use disorder, you walk in that room upset about the whole situation. And you can call it whatever you want. You can you can express that. That's what I think we do. We express things we don't understand how to deal with yeah. by terms like junkie, right? Drug addict, uh, drug seeker, yeah. pain seeker, right? All these terms, they arise out of the fact that I have to see 30 patients a day in a busy shift and it's really stressful. And I got to you know do a lot of things that cause trauma to me and trauma to patients. And so when I have that interaction, how can I dismiss it in a way that I can box it up and leave it alone? Yeah. But what you find is when you start to develop pathways for these things, when you assemble new pathways that people couldn't imagine before, oh, all of a sudden, this isn't so bad to treat. And wow, we really helped that person. Yeah. That's super interesting. And it's it really kind of flips the idea on its head of how you should be um, handling particular cases. Well, that's it. I think flipping the idea on its head is the key part. So the way I think about it is uh, I was trained to read, you read the textbook, you read the, you know, whatever professor tells you to read, to train, right, to get ready for what you're supposed to take care of in the ER. And that's what you go in expecting. When I took my boards, right, there was a core competency, a set of like, you know, 200, whatever, key critical things I have to know, yeah. you know, in and out. And that's why I go in thinking my model of an emergency medicine physician is, right, is yeah. the core curriculum, the things I was trained to do. But the reality is those aren't necessarily the things, either A, I just know how to do those so well, I don't even think about them cognitively, they don't give me stress, but B, the majority of the interactions I have are not in the textbook. Yeah. So if we flip <laughs> it on our head, maybe we should let patients, right, this is the ultimate patient-centered place to get to, the macro patient place to get to, is why don't we let patients define what emergency medicine doctors do? Mm -hmm. Because it's patients who are coming to see us. So why don't we just respond to what this structural system has given us, which is we're the ones who are there 24 hours a day, and they're the ones who are coming in with the thing. And yeah. what they come in with is opioid use disorder, alcoholism, uh, effects of tobacco over time, effects of poverty, effects of racism, effects of nutrition insecurity. 
that's what we see. And so let's get better at treating those things. Yeah, I have to say, so I tweeted flippantly earlier that my only knowledge of uh, emergency medicine comes from the TV show ER, which to probably Gen Z doesn't Kovach mean an guy. awful lot. No, 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 you yeah, are? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely. Um, so this is this is definitely not what happens in the show. You know, this is this is a completely different experience for me and a completely different interpretation of what emergency medicine actually means. So David has another question for you. He says, you are doing a PhD in anthropology. <laughs> how much does your medical work feed into that and how much does it not? Um, if so, where do you find the time? Yeah. So it, this goes back to that thing of um, if there's an obvious clinical question, if there's an obvious question, then it all hits on all cylinders and it makes sense to do it, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of medical anthropologists who don't have a PhD. There's no reason to have to do this. But what happened was there was a clear place where I felt like I could make a theoretical contribution and a clinical contribution that kind of arose to me. And I was like, you know what? It probably makes sense to finish this out with, with that. And plus, I mean, part of my career now is I really enjoy... Uh, mentoring students and I really enjoyed having a PhD student which has obviously got some you know awkwardness and ironicness that you know I'm now starting a PhD and I had a PhD student but whatever you know this is this is <laughs> such is life and I'm comfortable with uh, awkward weirdness um, but yeah so the, the PhD um, so I started thinking a lot about what it is we're doing at Pathways and you know what we're doing with Pathways is really a place that I don't think has been done before clinically or anthropologically. So anthropologically, there's this concept that's been introduced pretty widely now. Public health knows about it and epidemiology knows about it. It's this concept of syndemics. Okay. And this concept of syndemics basically says you've got two disease states that go together because of a social reason, right? Some some social determinant reason. Um, the classic one is SABA, uh, substance abuse, violence, and AIDS. That was the classic, you know, first description of it. So there was that on the table, and I'll, I'll put this all together in a second. There was that on the table, and there was um, also this concept in anthropology around assemblages and how, how assemblages are forming and how sort of things both are together already but also get put together because of different structural forces. Mm -hmm. um, so I started thinking, wow, I think I could maybe think about some of the work we're doing around pathways in that framework and maybe move that theory a little bit forward. And I think I could also do this clinically in a way that would drive some really positive change for patients. And so what I really started thinking about what we were doing, if we take a patient who's got opioid use disorder and they've also got hepatitis C, let's return to my original problem, right? Uh -huh. It's always great when things are problem-based because it's just, you, you've got a real motivation, right? My funding was based on linking hepatitis C patients. I was not doing a good job of linking hepatitis C patients, uh -huh. right? See the problem. So it was like, wait a minute. So if I, if I take these patients hepatitis C and I treat their opioid use disorder, I get my hepatitis C linkage rates up to 70%. Remember I said they were down at below 30%. Yeah. And that's great. I wonder if I could also treat those patients with direct acting antivirals, which are a medication that came out to treat hepatitis C in around 2015 or so, just like we do with HIV, but people weren't doing. If I treat a person who's actively injecting with hepatitis C medicines, I can decrease transmission of hepatitis C and cure them for their hepatitis C. Well, they're not very interested in going to a infectious disease doctor or hepatologist, right? They're 24 year old kids uh -huh. who are using IV drugs. So that's not on their radar. Yeah. Now they might be interested though, in getting those medicines, if they're also getting opioid use disorder medications to help with their opioid use disorder medicine. As a matter of fact, let's push it further. If I've got a place I trust, yeah. 
that's they're nice to me. They're giving me buprenorphine, which is the medicine for treating this. And they also happen to say, hey, would you like some medicine for your hepatitis C too? I might be willing to take that because I trust this place. Yeah. I'm already engaged in clinical care. I already got to come get my other medicine anyway. Mm-hmm. Maybe now I take this and I retain care and I cure my hepatitis C. So what I started thinking was, wait, this co-located care thing, I think this is like a new way to think about syndemics. If you really look at syndemics, the way it has sort of been, I don't know if stuck is the right word, but um, utilized is a descriptive epidemiology uh, concept. Right. Meaning it, it basically shows how things are connected. That's super important. That drives hypotheses, that, that, that is definitely important. But could we do more with the concept? Mm-hmm. And you know what I really thought about is our new assemblages of care allow us to really take this endemic model and expand it to a co-located care space. In other words, we expand endemics from description to treatment. Yep. And that's really what the PhD is all about, is that idea of expanding endemics from description to treatment. So you just answered his next question, which was, and why would a doctor need a PhD? <laughs> Really, it's become really part of my my personal career is uh, having students and and trying to help them think about these ways to drive change. Uh, specifically, you know, with anthropology students, my my goal and role overall this big the big picture concept is when I was in the ER, you know, five years ago we had zero anthropologists working in the ER directly. Mm-hmm. We have four anthropologists oh, wow. working in the ER now, right? Working in the ER, yeah, developing yeah. pathways, seeing patients, so. You know, now this is sort of a runaway train around this new concept of, um, or revitalized concept of clinical anthropology. Mm -hmm. Clinical anthropology is not a new concept, but the way we're doing it's different. Um, Clinical anthropology died a sort of a sad death in the early 80s. (laughs) What what happened was people who called themselves clinical anthropologists in the like late 70s, early 80s, what they were really doing was trying to find ways to get patients to do what the doctor said. Uh-huh. And that's not what we're looking to do, right? This is very, I think what I've described so far on this podcast is not, clearly not that, right? Yeah. I'm responding to patients' needs and trying to come up with a pathway for them, right? Mm-hmm. So very different. And so I think critical medical anthropology appropriately critiqued clinical anthropology of the mid-80s, early 80s. And so it sort of went away. And then what you saw is really the rise of these critical medical anthropology approaches, which were about really power system uh, critiques, which are all warranted, all fair, but it kind of left a gap of, well, what do we do with the patients though? Remember them? They're still coming. Look, I want to change the world too. Please do. But today I got to see 30 patients. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So going back to Sichi's work, for example, um, patient satisfaction scores for providers get pretty stuck in the mud. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really hard. It's not impossible, but it's really hard to move them. And we're talking, you know, people tend to like their doctors a little bit at least. So... (laughs) But we're talking about moving the scores. We're talking about moving from good to like excellent, right? Like yeah. not being on the Olympic team to be on the Olympic team. That's the kind of like numbers we're talking. So it's going to take like some different ways, right? It's going to take a whole different lens directly in that to get pathways to change. Mm-hmm. When my incentive is to, and my thought and my training, my education is to go deal with heart attacks. It's going to take a whole nother lens to try to show how do we build new systems of care in completely different ways than we had done before. And that's what most of my anthropologists that I've got working in the ER are doing. They're building new systems of care in just totally different ways than we would have before. They're 
critiquing the system, but I always joke they're doing it not just at the physicians, but with the physicians now yeah. instead. And that to me is the big, big difference, right? They're engaging our healthcare staff, even administrative staff to mm -hmm. jointly critique and drive for change in a way that doesn't bankrupt the hospital, doesn't you know keep us from seeing patients and uh, can help us on a daily basis and the big picture. Yeah, I think that's the ideal for interdisciplinary work, right? I hope so. Um, you, know, you know, it seems to resonate. You, know, you mentioned the podcast, how many people I've kind of worked with. So it seems to resonate. I mean, even so, even being involved in Center for Justice Research and Policy has been interesting because a lot of that work that I do is really around the legal aspects of setting up an opioid use disorder pathway, right? I mean, I started a needle exchange in Tampa. Mm -hmm. Look, I would not, if you told me 10 years ago I was going to start a needle exchange, I would not have believed you. <laughs> I mean, I'd be like, oh, I'll get arrested, right? I mean, this isn't going to happen. And we did, right? And we're, you know, there's some other things we'd like to do. You know, fentanyl strips are still legal to give mm -hmm. out to patients, which is killing people, by the way. Just it didn't pass in the state house and Senate this last legislative session, and that will kill people this year. I just want to make that clear to people is if you, that, that's the ability to have a patient test their own or a person test their mm -hmm. own uh, drugs and yeah, make sure yeah, there's yeah. no fentanyl in there and we can't distribute those but these are the legal issues we face and that's a lot of the work I do at the CJRP and with Dr. Rowe, yeah. you know, Dr. Fox and uh, you know that and the gunshot wound stuff as well we're doing a lot of qualitative work around interviewing people who have not been shot our thought was um, look we've got a front seat to parry violence essentially and what public health has done is very important in terms of telling us about populations and like making it clear to people who are reading that there's a problem with guns in this country and that a lot of people die from guns and yeah. you know 40 to 50,000 people die a year of guns. We've got two different problems. We have a suicide problem and a violence problem, right? And it, that's important to point out. But what we don't know yet is what do you do about it, right? Yeah. And we feel like our ethnographically informed work with patients is going to lead us to some really informed interventions that maybe have not been there previously um, or have not worked previously because they weren't informed by the patients who've experienced that violence. So it's that same model we used in opioid use disorder. We built a pathway based on what patients were telling us. We're trying to build the same pathway out now based on what people have been injured by gunshot wound violence, either now or in the past, uh, what they would, what, how they think change might be affected, what they would tell us. Yeah, that, that seems like an important audience to be taking into account here. Yeah, I would argue that there are some examples of that audience sometimes being involved in operation of a system that's been designed but I would say that their involvement in, in creating the system that you want to test has been not as good. Yeah. So, unfortunately, it feels like with most of the podcasts we record these days, all roads lead back to COVID, right? <laughs> um, and so you have been kind of, particularly within the Tampa Bay area, a voice for, you know, what the response has been to COVID, like what, what the requirements are, what we need to do. So there are a couple of things that I was thinking. And the first is, what was your experience like as an emergency room doctor dealing with people coming in? Um, what did it look like? Because I, I can't imagine, like for the majority of us, and this is one of the things that I think people have brought up is that if we all felt this on a very tangible level, maybe the response would have been very, very different. Like if we'd seen the patients coming in, like how would we have responded? David and I have been, pretty isolated throughout this experience we're still wearing masks and stuff so what was it like for you essentially on the front lines of this thing yeah and it's been exactly two years now you know yeah. that we really hit got hit with COVID and it's a life of its own it's a changing story right I mean I remember March 13th 2020 
was our first COVID positive patient. And we had decided to do testing at Tampa General, which is a very controversial and inside controversial decision, by the Mm -hmm. way, because we don't want to be the testing place at the time. But it actually ended up being a super important decision, which we, in retrospect, is obvious now because we could understand the epidemiology in ways that were not politicized. Yes. Right. We could have control of the data. And there's so many people at our hospital that we had a pretty good handle of what the data in this whole area looked like regardless of what other you know sources might be telling us we knew where we were on the curves mm-hmm. right but anyway it's been exactly two years since we had our first patient and i remember that first patient the test came back positive at about two o'clock in the morning i was home and i got a little ding on my phone the first test came back positive and i flipped out i was like oh my gosh it's a positive test the patient's gone home there's yeah. a positive in tampa and i remember i called the director of the department of health and you know i was like hey there's a positive test and they sent like you know uh epidemiologically intelligence service people to the house and like you know quarantine the patient and we were in full containment mode right to where we ended up right which is like okay so a positive COVID test right yeah yeah yeah. it's amazing to watch that like just like watching that transition happen and you know watching like remember may 2020 like when we were all like in our houses like even people who became kind of um, not as reasonably complacent to public health models. Those people were in their houses too in May 2020. The whole yeah. world kind of shut down. And our case numbers were incredibly low Yes. in May 2020. Yes. And then you look at that summer of, uh, you know, that summer where they kind of went up and then, you know, you think that's gonna be the worst it is. Then you get Delta and Delta is really, I think, where it was really bad for us. You know, Delta, we were already tired, right? Yeah. Cause we'd been in it a year. And it was the worst of it, right? The sickest people, there were vaccines available, right? So we were, I always joke, you know, I'm a white guy, right? For people who are listening, just so they know what they're listening to. Usually the way the world works, if I walk into a patient room in the South and they're over the age of 60 and I say, get up and jump up and down four times, they'll say, yes, then get up and jump up and down four times. That's just the way this world is right now in the South, in the United States. This was the first time where even I, as a white guy, could walk in the room and there was clear vitriol, clear like this guy. Oh, this guy. What is he going to tell you? Right? And you know, so much so that I'd have patients I remember who were in our COVID unit sitting next to each other and adamantly against the vaccine, but were up like advocating for the monoclonal antibodies to each other. Like, oh, you got to get those. And me thinking as a physician. You know the risk calculation here i'm mean, not saying don't get please go get monoclonals if you have mild moderate covid but i mean still you you would think the the safety data for vaccines compared to monoclonal antibody synthetic monoclonal antibodies is like i4 driving versus like airplane you know commercial airplane <laughs> flight so it's just like and I'm, we've had no bad reactions please go get monoclonal antibodies but i'm just the, the level of understanding around that risk was yeah. incredible so then you have sick people plus that going on and, you know, I, I don't, I, I still don't know if people understand. I mean, we had a third of the hospital was people with COVID, you mm-hmm. know, at one point, a third of a big level one trauma center urban hospital. That's a lot. That's a big number. Yes. You know, and so it's all these little things you don't even think about, right? Putting people on auction and, you know, you have to worry about the auction supply lines. Do you have enough compression? We never had to do this, but we had early conversations about, well, who would we put on oxygen? Yeah. Who would we put on ECMO? ECMO is a way to perfuse people without a mm-hmm. tube in their mouth. We never had to do that here. But the fact that we've been having those conversations, the fact, I'll tell you what really hit me. And I remember texting you know, my family about it. We have 
a disaster space built under our ER. It's for a mass casualty situation. Uh-huh. So it has, you know, air zones, you know, of different places for people to assemble. It's got showers that come down in case of chemical attacks, all those things, right? It's a very well-designed disaster space. I've drilled in that space every year for the last 15 years of my life or so. I've never used it in real life. In April of 2020, we opened it. Yeah. Not pretend opened it, not a drill opened it. It was the most surreal experience of the COVID thing for me because it made it like seem, I mean, it must be what Ukrainians are like thinking when like, they're like, I live in a modern city and there's someone Mm -hmm. bombing my house. Like, it's just like, I can't believe this is actually like happening. You know, we're actually going to use this space. And, and, and the next day I remember walking out and opening the door. There's a door that kind of goes down to it. I remember opening the door, looking outside and there were just people lined up you know as far as you could see and they were like that from you know 8 a.m until 3 a.m just you know lines and lines of people we had a 30 percent positivity rate that day i remember and now it's you know it's two or two years in it's basically just become really a part of my clinical life which i could not even imagine beforehand because these are like the scenarios you train for but what we're really in now is a two-year mass casualty situation because it's hit everything right it's yeah. in our staff yeah. It's in our workforce, right? All the reasons why workforces are affected by these things have unraveled themselves, right? These other pandemics of poverty and unemployment and, and everything else, those have all unraveled too. And so now we have all those issues that have come to bear and they sit here still with us two years later. Yeah, and I, I hope people are going to recognize the fact that the reason I couldn't see my primary physician just for like regular checkups for six months is because of this. Yeah. Right, they had to reduce the amount of time that they were seeing people and so many other complications in the way, like he had to cancel appointment, I had to cancel an appointment. Six months just to go and get in my annual physical. Well, and we're still dealing with the ramifications of that, right? So if I cancel all those appointments, what do you think happens when COVID right now calms down a little bit, right? Yeah. And, but I have no staff, right? Yeah. I have no nursing staff, no EVS staff, uh, housekeepers, things like that, no phlebotomy staff. So all these people come back in for their elective procedures, for their uh, visits, for their encounters, right? So now your volume still feels like it did during COVID, just not COVID anymore. Yeah. And you still have those same stresses and struggles because there's no staff and there's yeah. limited hospital resources and everybody's got their other eye on COVID still because, you know, ba 2 is out there and UK's got a little blip and what's going to happen ah. next? Oh, no. <laughs> please go get vaccinated. <laughs> God, please. Yes. Um, so... I have very much enjoyed talking to you today. I don't know what I expected from this podcast, but it's been it's been enlightening. It's been a really interesting experience. But before we leave, because I hate ending up on a kind of sour note, can you say something positive before we leave? <laughs> Just to kind of... <laughs> I, I will say something positive. I, I, you know, okay, where we are right now, I think is an interesting place where people are open to new models of care and new models of care delivery and people have recognition of the vulnerabilities that humans face. I think that has become much more clear. Um, And I I think we can capitalize on not only some of the COVID pieces, but some of the other structural issues that have been brought to, I mean, look, a year and a half ago, we were riding our bikes. There were lines of nice cars getting food. Yeah. And I think everybody saw that, right? And so I think there is some recognition right now that there are some you know, serious disparities, not just healthcare-wise, but economically in this country, and that we have some clear structural, because we've used structural means to solve some of them, right? Mm-hmm. We, we did that. And so there's like at least that exposure to that. 
that helps us when we build out pathways because it helps us our opioid use patients. And we, we do have that. If I look back, you know, five years ago, we weren't giving out naloxone. We didn't have a needle exchange. We weren't, you know, treating people with opioid disorder in a non-stigmatized, trauma-informed way. There were no grants available for this stuff. And all those things are there right now. So I look at that as some light in the tunnel that people at least have recognition right now that people are struggling and, and need some help, uh, even from scientists. <laughs> that sounds like they even need help from scientists. Yeah. But yeah. No, thank you. That was that was tremendous. I really, really enjoyed that. Thank you for meeting us today. No, thank you for having me. It's uh, been great. And I got a Bell's Too Hard at Ale out of it. So <laughs> it's been good. There you go. You're a cheap date. I'm on a board um, for a healthcare plan. And we had a new board member and I had missed the meeting where she was introduced. So I had no idea what she did. And we were thinking about expanding the healthcare plan to St. Petersburg. And, you know, during this conversation, and I, I have some connections over there and I was like, oh, I might be able to help with that. And um, I've got some connections I formulate over there. And, you know, everybody's like nodding and everything. And I, it turns out this, this other new board member is the VP of Baycares Community Relations and <laughs> You know, basically the person who knows every single person yes. who can do anything in St. Pete, right? And she was so polite. She's like, oh, this nice doctor. <laughs> he knows a couple people, right? Right. I've got the mayor and the county commissioners and all the you billionaires on speed dial, right? Like, yeah, right. she and she was. She was so nice, you know, like, here's some more rope for you. You've been listening to Two Scientists, directed, edited, and hosted by me, Pamve Bahia, and co-produced with David Basanta Gutierrez. This recording took place at the New World Brewery, where I may or may not have gotten a little tipsy on a jalapeno IPA, and so was less talkative than usual. The guest music you can hear is courtesy of the excellent Sulin Hago, who is Jason's friend, music mentor, and guitar teacher. We thank them for the opportunity to feature this track, Forbidden Paradise. Check the show notes to find the link to Sulin's website and more of their amazing tunes. And while you're there, you can also check out all of Jason's socials to keep up with his amazing work. Well, you never seem quite real on yeah. Zoom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you're kind of like a fake person I'm talking to. <laughs> like, I've just set you up there to, like, have somebody to speak with, you know?